You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. moment is September 7th, the year 2000, at the MTV Movie Awards, and the man on the left wearing the black Metallica t-shirt is Sean Fanning, who is the co-founder of a company called Napster. Um, He's standing there with then MTV reporter Carson Daly, and in this scene, Carson Daly notices Sean Fanning's shirt, and he asks Fanning where he got it, and Fanning has this kind of infamous response where he says, a friend of mine shared it with me. Uh, and at the time, this was a very controversial moment. And so here's the backstory for those of you who are unfamiliar with the situation. Uh, a few months before this moment, Metallica, who's one of the most successful bands of all time, is in the studio working on a song called I Disappear for the Mission Impossible soundtrack. And one day they wake up and the song is all over the radio. It was playing on radio stations all across the country. The only problem is the song isn't finished yet. The song is not even mixed. The song is not ready to be released, and it wasn't released. And so somehow, someone had stolen it and released it uh, without Metallica's permission, and they had no idea. And so they launched this investigation. They end up tracing the theft all the way back to this underground file-sharing company called Napster, which was kind of like Spotify or uh, Pandora before those things existed. And uh, when Metallica discovered Napster... They found out not only was their new song available, but their entire catalog is available. So anybody, anywhere in the world can go on Napster at this time, and you could just download uh, all of Metallica's music for free. And so uh, this begins one of the biggest lawsuits in music history. Uh, Metallica files a lawsuit against Napster for copyright infringement and racketeering um, for a total of $10 million, which is what they uh, counted that they had lost, calculated that they had lost. And so they go on to actually win uh, in the U.S. District Court, but Metallica loses in the court of public opinion. So the case made against Metallica by Napster and by the majority of people in our culture was, hey, look, they're filthy rich, right? They've got all this money. They don't need mine. Uh, why should I have to go online or why should I have to you know, pay for their music? Why, why, why can't I just go online and get it for free? I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. Uh, they're not going to miss this money anyway. What's the big idea, right? That's kind of the case made against them in the court of public opinion. Metallica's comeback, their case was really quite simple. It doesn't matter if you steal from the rich or if you steal from the poor. Stealing is stealing. It's illegal and it's always wrong. Now, ethically, is this a gray area? No. Okay, good. In the first service, not many people answered. I was worried about it. Um, No. Yeah, Metallica's clearly right. And all the ethicists who study this case agree that this is, in fact, a case of stealing. And stealing is always wrong. And every culture, any culture we've ever studied, that's just baseline morality. You can't take things that don't belong to you. Um, But this continues to happen. And so a few years later, the government passes these anti-piracy laws. I don't know if you remember these at the beginning of DVDs, right? Piracy, it's a crime. And then, you know, you still see this FBI warning on any records you buy or any DVD you buy. There's this FBI warning. Some the FBI is like, we're going to get you. You know, we're going to find you or you can be arrested for any reproduction of this product without consent. And so the point's really clear. Uh, legally and ethically, the piracy of music or film was clearly wrong. It's not a gray area. Yet, okay, in spite of that, what happened in our culture is that most people just move the moral line to make piracy socially acceptable. It's just what everybody does, right? And so we enter into the whole new world of burning CDs. Uh, Raise your hand if you remember burning CDs. Okay, you all just admitted to committing a crime. So, um, and by the way, CD stands for compact disc. For those of you who are in our student ministry, uh, who... Uh, we're not alive pre-Spotify Spotify or Apple Music, and so there's these little shiny things uh, that s- get scratched and skip, and they're really annoying. But um, 
I remember having this CD case in the visor of my truck, right, with all these silver CDs on it, with the Sharpie written all over it, right, all these burned CDs. Um, and, and, and some of you are like, maybe you're stuck in the 2003 and you still have that in your car. Uh, but I, I had those and so, um, and just loved my burn CDs. I had a friend named Darren, actually one of Jared's best high school friends as well, who did not love my burn CDs and was not cool with it. In fact, Darren was not cool with a lot of things that I did. And so Darren, uh, would get in my truck at times and he would be like, listen, not only are the lyrics to this CD inappropriate, but you also stole it, you know? So, um, somebody else burned this for you and you didn't pay for this. And we would all kind of make fun of Darren, uh, a little bit and kind of get angry at him for judging us. And we would be like, look, dude, cool out, man. Like, uh, it's 2000, by the way. And so I'm not going to go to Hastings or Sam Goody and pay $18 for the new Blink record. I'm just going to have Justin download it for me and then I'll have it. Right. And so, you know, uh, Darren has a problem with this, but I'm just like, look, man, everybody does it. Everybody's doing it. Right. So. Fast forward 20 years later, I look back on this. I've grown up a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. And I look back on this and, and realize that Darren was right. He's right about a lot of things, actually. Um, although I wouldn't be surprised if that dude doesn't burn CDs today. Would you? I'll probably probably does. He's in a different spot now. He's still a great guy, but um, that was for free. If he's listening, if you hear that. Um, but so... <laughs> He's not, he's not listening. He's not listening. Jared says no. Um, so, uh, so I realized, you know, he's right about this. And here, here's, I'm kind of, as just, I'm assessing myself. Here's what I realized is I had gotten sucked up into a culture that now has a moral system where judging your friends for stealing was seen as wrong and stealing was seen as that's just fine. Everybody does it. And within just a couple of years of the Napster Metallica case, right and wrong on this issue had been completely redefined along the lines of public opinion and popular desire. And and piracy is now just this socially acceptable thing that everybody does. Now, I start with that story because it's, for the most part, a non-emotional example. Like, I don't think, for most of us, it's an emotional trigger for you to think about your relationship to illegal music in your past. Um, But the reason I share this is because I think it's a perfect example of what Jesus and the writers of the New Testament call the world. And it gets right at the heart of how the world functions and how the world wants to conform us into something that is opposite of Jesus um, and and who he has created and called us to be. And so on that note, I want to look at John 15 uh, together. So if if your Bible's still open, let's go back to the text. Go to John chapter 15. We'll start in verse 18. And here's what Jesus says. And we're going to read a lot. So kind of buckle up, open, open your ears, open the eyes of your heart here to the God's word. So verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they, that is the world, they don't know him who sent me. And so this is Jesus on the world. Notice he says things like, look, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not of the world. In other words, you don't belong to the world. You belong to me, Jesus says. You don't follow the way of the world. You follow the way of Jesus. And he says, um, if you were of the world, they would love you and accept you, right? They would just baptize you. They would love you. They would accept you. But he says, because you follow me, the world is going to hate you the same way it hated me. Jesus goes on to develop this idea of the world into a major theme in his teaching. And so flip over to John chapter 17, just a couple chapters later. This is Jesus' famous prayer to the Father on the night before he goes to the cross. And we'll start in verse 6. And Jesus says this, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. Here's what he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Skip down to verse 13. 
But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that, uh, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent uh, me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, Jesus. He just mentioned the world over a dozen times in two paragraphs. So he's being emphatic. And and I I think we need to pay attention to this. It's significant that this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And look at what's on his heart. The thing he's so concerned about is our relationship to the world. And that as disciples, we would be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, that we would be missionaries in the world, but that we wouldn't be compromised. And we wouldn't compromise the way of Jesus, and we wouldn't take the shape of the world. And this idea of being shaped by the world doesn't stop with Jesus. You see this throughout. New Testament writers pick this right up from Jesus, and they carry it to the end of your Bible. I think of Paul's famous line in Romans twelve twelve, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so again, it's this idea that the world is trying to press and shape you into something and to assimilate you into its way of thinking and living. And Paul says, don't let it. Don't be conformed. Or you have James, the brother of Jesus, who says it like this in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So James paints a picture of a war here. There's two opposing sides. Um, he says to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God. And then you have one final passage. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, near the end of your Bible. John continues to build on this idea of the world from Jesus, Paul, and all these other guys. And so um, I want to primarily focus on this passage this morning. So here's what John has to say about the world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and notice these three categories. We're going to come back to these. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but they're from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the warning here is clear. The logic is clear. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if you love the world, you don't love God and you can't love both. I mean, it's really clear logic. If you love the world, you don't love God and you can't love both. Um, these two are enemies. They're mutually exclusive, right? In spite of what some bumper stickers say, these two realities cannot coexist. John says, if you love the world, you don't love God. You can't love both, so don't love the world. Now, the first question we have to ask here is, what exactly do Jesus and John and all these biblical authors mean when they talk about the world in this sense? Because this can be confusing. Um, in another book John wrote, he said, For God so loves the world, right? The famous John 3.16. And now here he says, don't love the world. In fact, don't love anything in the world. And so what is he talking about? What is the world? Um, let's unpack that word, okay? So uh, the Greek word for world is the word cosmos. It's where we get the English word cosmos. And uh, that's what you go to seminary for, is to learn stuff like that. So you're welcome. And uh, what you have to understand about this word is it has lots of different meanings. And there's lots of words in English that function the same way. Think about the word ball. Ball can be like a round object that you play with. It can be a dance that you get all dressed up for. It can, be, it can describe the fun you're having, like we're having a ball. And world in Greek, cosmos, is, functions in, in quite the same way. It has at least three meanings in the New Testament. So let me run through these real fast, okay, so we don't get confused. Number one, cosmos sometimes just means planet Earth. Paul says in Romans 1.20, he talks about the creation of the world. He's talking about planet Earth. Um, other times, uh, world means humanity, like in the sense of John 3.16 that we just quoted. Jesus is clearly talking about human beings when he says, For God so loved the world that Jesus died for us. And so in both of these meanings, uh, the word world is talking about the physical material world that God has made, and uh, including human beings. And so John here in 1 John 2 is clearly not telling you that you should hate that. 
Right, I just want to say for a second, because this has been kind of abused, so real quick, commercial on this. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus proves that God loves and cares about the physical world, your body, material, physicality. None of that's bad. None of that's evil. And we are called to love and care for the physical world, and we're especially called to love and care for other human beings, right? Um, whether, regardless of whether or not they're Christians, uh, if they're far from God, even your enemies, Jesus says, you're called to love them. So... Um, clearly we're not called to hate the world in this sense. So what is John talking about? Well, when John's talking about don't love the world, or Jesus is talking about don't let the world shape you and conform you, he's getting at this third meaning of cosmos. And here's the way that one scholar defines it. He says, when the Bible talks about the world in the sense of the world, the flesh, the devil, the three enemies of the soul, it refers to a whole system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that have become institutionalized in a culture and organized around rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So, what he's saying is, the world in this sense is a system or a kingdom controlled by the devil. And the culture of that kingdom, the values, the practices, the beliefs, they're all organized to assist you and help you live in rebellion against God and redraw the moral boundaries so that you can be in charge and live however you want. If I want to steal music, I'll steal music. If I want to hook up with somebody, I'll hook up with them. I'm going to, I'm going to redraw the moral line and push and move the moral line to suit my desires, whatever I prefer. And the world is a system that is designed to help you do that. And it's not a new problem. So to get at the origin of this world system, we have to go back, we have to go further than the year 2000. We have to go all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So go there with me in your imagination. So we're in the garden. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, um, everything is great. They live in perfect union with God and with one another. And then the serpent, also known as the devil, comes on the scene and lies to them and tempts them to rebel against God. Um, did God really say, did, did he really draw a line here and say that you can't eat from that tree? I think that you should reject that and do what you want to do. Eve basically replies to him and says, well, that's wrong. Like, we can't do that. That's wrong. And if we do that, God says, we'll die. And the serpent essentially says, well, surely you won't die. Here's what's going on here. Um, the big man just knows that the moment you take life into your hands, and you, you, you take this fruit, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to have all this power. You're going to be like God, and you're going to be wise. And you will be able to now uh, define right and wrong on your own terms, which means you get to be the boss, and you get to have whatever you desire. You get the kingdom without the king. And now check this out. In that moment, when we take the bait, and we buy into this lie, and bite into this fruit, Here's what happens. The world happens. And the world is what happens when this temptation to rebel and redraw the moral line spreads through Adam and Eve and infects entire civilizations and people groups. And it becomes institutionalized and normalized in their culture. In other words, whatever shape it takes, this kind of rebellion and redefinition is just normal now. Like it's, it's natural People rebel against God. We rebel against God and pursue our own desires. It's just what we do now. And listen, the reason why Paul and all these other guys have to say, don't be conformed to the world, don't be conformed, don't be conformed, is because that's exactly what's happening. Paul wouldn't have to say it if it wasn't a real temptation and if it wasn't happening. Every day, you and I... Every day, the scary thing is every day you and I are being pressed and shaped and formed by the world. And what's really scary is that most of us are not even aware of it. And we don't even have to try. So like all you have to do is just wake up tomorrow and go throughout your day with no intentional thought to your discipleship to Jesus. And you're being shaped and formed by the world. So just, just by virtue of breathing and living here and doing and going about your day like you're absorbing certain messages, certain values, certain beliefs from the world designed to partner with your flesh and with the devil's agenda to destroy you. And again, like this, the frightening thing is most of it happens under the hood of consciousness. We're, so we're not even aware of it. And we're not even trying. And it's happening. 
And a lot of cultural commentators and kind of modern-day prophets are talking about this cultural moment that we're in now and how it's never been easier for us to be formed by the world than it is now because now we live in the digital age, uh, which means that you have a smartphone, unless you're Randy in the last service who doesn't have a smartphone. But if you have a smartphone, it means that you have constant access to the world. And guess what? The world has constant access to you. That's not to, like, I'm not... I'm not like, you know, down on smartphones. I have one. I'm simply saying that what you have to realize now is that, that through, through the digital age and through these little devices, like the world has a portal and a window into your soul, like a channel to just feed stuff. And it happens all day, every day. And so what's happening in the church is real subtly, Christians are incorporating these worldly values and beliefs that we're being fed and we're adding those onto our faith in Jesus and creating kind of our own religious system, our own kind of DIY, do-it-yourself faith system. And a lot of people are writing about this. David Tackle's one of them. So here's what David Tackle says in his book, Truth About Lies, which is available for purchase right out there. Um, Tackle says this, An alarming number of Christians in our culture today are very prone to viewing their faith as a largely volunteer enterprise. Now check this out. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from the dominant culture and add those to the Christian faith. This syncretistic approach, pay attention to that word syncretism, to faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our lives rather than God. Much of its appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold on to the illusion of being Christ-like in one's behavior. So notice that important word that, that Tackle calls this syncretism. Um, that's a really important old-school theological term that we've gotten away from, and we kind of need to recover and get back to it. Here's why. Syncretism is really the fundamental problem throughout human history. It's the problem throughout the Old Testament for God's people. It's our biggest problem. And so let me, let me just define it for you. Syncretism, here's a couple definitions. Uh, the merging or blending of two or more belief and value systems into a new system that takes a shape of its own. Or here's the way uh, Ed Stetzer puts it. Syncretism is mixing Christianity with something else to create a false gospel that allows one to assume he can maintain the benefits of Jesus and at the same time live for other God's values and desires that are fundamentally opposed to Jesus. So like in other words, and this is, this is what the, the world doesn't want you to know, but the stuff that I'm telling you right now. This is the stuff it would like to keep out of your purview. So what, what's, what Stetzer's getting at is syncretism is not Jesus or Syncretism is Jesus and. It's real subtle. And so it's the lie that I can take a little bit of the way of Jesus and mix it with a little bit of the way of the world, and I can kind of create my own, my own religion, so to speak, where I get to keep the parts of Jesus that I like, but I also get to pursue these other desires that I like. And you know what? It's okay if the two don't mix together. I'll just move the moral line. I'll just simply redraw it around my preferences and on my terms. And then I can sort of be in control. And I can, again, keep the parts of Jesus I like. I can also keep these other desires. And I get to have it my way. And again, what's so dangerous about this is we live in a culture that baptizes this and says, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Right? Who are you to tell me that? I'll define my own truth. I get to be my own boss. Who are you to tell me anything? Don't be conformed by the world. So to bring all this home, I think the question we have to ask is, where have, where have I bought into this? Um, in what ways am I being shaped and conformed by the world to live in rebellion against God and do the opposite of what he says and to redefine the moral lines along my desires? Like, where am I being shaped? The question is not, are you being shaped? The question is, how are you being shaped? Where have you already been shaped? And you brought that in here with you this morning, just like I did. And so to answer that question, the great theologian Richard Lovelace makes a really good point. He says, you can't recognize where you're being conformed to the world if you don't recognize the shape of the world. In other words, we need to know what the marks of worldliness are. It's like if you're making soup and you've got like 
man, that ingredient doesn't belong. Or that's just a, that, that's a good ingredient, but it's a little bit too much of that ingredient. And now we've over-identified with it. We've used it too much. Or that ingredient is way out of bounds for what this recipe calls for. And you can like taste that and it's sour and it's bitter and it doesn't work. Like what Loveless is saying is we need to, we need to know the gospel well enough and, and, and we need to know the marks of the world well enough that when the two bump up against each other, you can taste it. And you can call foul on that. And you can say, uh-uh, I'm not buying into that. I'm going to turn away from that. And I'm going to pursue the way of Jesus. And so the question, are, the question is, what are the marks of the world? And so in our last section here, I want to go back to 1 John chapter 2 because John helps us here. So um, uh, I, want to, I want to go back. We'll, we'll reread verses 15 and 16. And again, we're just asking the question, okay, what, what are the marks of the world? What does it taste like? What does it look like? Verse 15, here's what John says. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here we go, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, those things are not from the Father. That stuff is the world. So notice how John describes the world in verse 16. He uses three phrases. He's given us three marks of the world or three categories of worldliness to watch out for. He says the world consists of, number one, the desires of the flesh, Number two, the desires of the eyes. And number three, the pride of life. Okay, a brief word on each of these. First category, um, these are the marks. Okay, first category. When John talks about the desires of the flesh, he's talking about our appetite for pleasure. And this goes all the way back to the garden as one of our biggest temptations. Eve was tempted, we're told, when she saw that the tree was good for food. Um, another word for good uh, in Genesis 3, another translation would be pleasurable or delicious. So the temptation for Eve is she sees this and it's delicious and her body wakes up and she craves it and she says, I want to pursue that. I want to give myself to that pleasure. That will taste and feel good. And so let me just say this uh, before I go say anything else. Like, I don't want to... The church has, has done a really poor job um, throughout church history of having a good theology of pleasure. I'm not, the pastors, we would never say for a second that pleasure is a bad thing. Everything God made is good. Uh, God's not a celestial killjoy that doesn't want you to have fun. God created us with taste buds, with endorphins. He made us sensual creatures. Um, he gave us food and friendship and beauty and art and marriage and sex. And all these things are really, really good. All that's pleasurable. Where we get messed up is when we forget that God is the source of all of that. Okay? Um, that true pleasure is His presence. But the psalmist is right when he says, in His presence are pleasures forevermore. And so here's what happens. Here's our problem. And I, I, I'm so guilty of this. I, I, will I will forsake the source of pleasure which is God himself. And then I will have an inordinate desire for all these earthly pleasures that he has given us. And so I want the gifts without the giver. And I'll take the good things he's given me and make them into God things. And that's a bad thing. And there's lots of technical terms for that, like idolatry. But here's one for you that, that we need to rediscover. Hedonism. So the technical word for this is hedonism, which is the worship of pleasure. And what John wants us to see here, again, what he's talking about is this right here, the worship of pleasure, has been institutionalized and normalized in the world. And so now the lie we are told is it's okay to pursue whatever pleasure you want. That's just what everybody does. And here's how this is showing up in, in this cultural moment right now. Fascinating, fascinating. I read a fascinating article this week by David Williams. He's a cultural commentator for the West, Australian guy. And in this article, Williams talks about how, this is a little bit heady, but I want you to stay with me, okay? Williams talks about how historically, anthropologists have identified three basic worldviews for every, they've, they've, they've grouped all cultures into three basic worldviews, okay? So one would be um, uh, a fear-power worldview, which would be like indigenous superstitious uh, cultures, Another would be a shame-honor worldview, which would be like Eastern and Asian cultures. Um, and then you have a guilt-innocence worldview, which is traditionally Western cultures like Australia and, and Europe and the United States. And so historically, we have been in that guilt-innocence worldview, like that's what's driving us. And so a guilt-innocence worldview says that 
when you're in that kind of system, people make their decisions based on whether or not something is right or wrong. And there's this assumed universal moral code that's just written into the fabric of the cosmos, like, and everybody abides by it. And so you make your decision based on, is this right or is this wrong? Here is what is so fascinating. We are living in such a fascinating cultural moment for so many reasons. But sociologists are talking, you can go Google this and read about it. They're talking about how we've never seen a, ra- a shift this radical in human history in a worldview. Because the Western worldview is, is fundamentally turning and shifting. And this guilt-innocence thing is dying out. And it's being replaced by what sociologists are now calling a pain-pleasure worldview. A pain-pleasure worldview. And so, rather than basing our decisions on whether or not something is right or wrong in a pain-pleasure worldview, your decisions are based on whether something feels good or not. And so, we're willing to kind of redraw the moral lines and steal music if we want to, because, you know what, I like that music, and I enjoy that music, and it makes me feel good, and I deserve it. And you could take that, by the way, and massage that into a million examples of how we do this. Something else he says that's fascinating. Everybody lives with an inner voice, right? You have a conscience. And so this is crazy. He says that sociologists talk about how in a fear-power culture, the inner voice is an inner demon that says, fear me or I'll get you, right? In a shame-honor culture, the inner voice is like maybe an inner grandmother, and you hear your grandmother's voice that says, shame on you, don't you do that, don't bring dishonor to the family, right? And then in a guilt-innocence culture, the inner voice is this inner lawyer or this inner critic that says, do better, try harder, be good, don't fail. And he says, so what, what's the inner voice for, uh, for millennials and what's the inner voice for those of us now who are kind of living in what's shifting into a pain-pleasure worldview? Well, it's not an inner critic. The inner voice now, he says, is an inner therapist. And so we live with this inner therapist, and this inner therapist says, Hey man, look, you do what you want to do. Like, you go for it. You're, you're worth it. If it feels good, like, you, you deserve this. You deserve this. By the way, man, this is not a knock on therapists at all. No good therapist who's worth their salt would counsel that way. I think that's ridiculous and demonic. Um, but it is the way your inner therapist counsels. And it's the way my inner therapist counsels. And so here's what it's transi- translated into. There's a new law that we're all, like we used to believe there's these moral laws written into the universe. There's a new law written into the universe. And it's the law of hedonism. And the law of hedonism says, talk back to me here. The law of hedonism says, if it feels good, do it. Yeah. If it feels good, do it. And our identity is being reduced into, I'm just a pleasure seeker and a pain avoider. And I'm telling you, man, sociologists are putting their finger on this, and they're identifying this. This is single-handedly, this worldview is single-handedly driving the addiction epidemic in our culture. Whether it's an addiction to a, a digital addiction, a porn addiction, a substance addiction, because the pain-pleasure worldview tells us you do anything you can to avoid pain and pursue pleasure at all costs. Whatever the appetites, cravings of your flesh, the desires, go for it, baby. Do it. Do what feels good. Whatever you can to stay out of pain. And I'm telling you, here's, here's how this, this is in the church. It's in the church because it's in me. I see this in my life. And so here's how this is showing up in the church and in Christian culture. Sometimes we taste it in this prosperity gospel, but most of us are, are wise enough to know like that's garbage. Here's how it shows up in a much more subtle way, like in our culture. People who are like trying to practice the way of Jesus and be biblical. Here's how it shows up. Jesus, there's this thing pressed into us that says, Jesus, uh, your job is really to make me happy and comfortable. I added you to my life as an accessory, and your job now is to give me my best life now. Um, You give me a long, prosperous life, make me happy, healthy, wealthy, let me die peacefully in my sleep at a ripe old age, and then wake up in heaven, and you can show me to my mansion. Meanwhile, Jesus calls his disciples to take up our cross and die to follow him. And to embrace not a pain-pleasure worldview, 
but a worldview of suffering and glory. A worldview that is the cross before the crown, right? And so right here in this moment, like this is a real moment for you and for me. We're having a moment here. You've got to stop and ask yourself the question, where is this stuff in my life? Like where am I, where am I giving in to this inner therapist? And I've been buttoned up my whole life. And now, like, you know what? I'm ready to have some fun. Like, where, where are you believing this? This subtle, where do you see this mix of Jesus plus the pursuit of pleasure? And by the way, there is no denying that sin is pleasurable. When Eve took the fruit, do you think it tasted good? Yeah, it was delicious, right? So there's, there's no denying. The, the Bible's honest about this, that sin is pleasurable. It feels good. There's this line from Hebrews 11.25 that talks about enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so it says that sin is pleasurable. It also says that sin is fleeting, which means it's fun in the moment, but it's passing away, like John says. And in the end, it leaves you more empty, more thirsty, more hungry, and no matter how much pleasure you pursue, it's never enough which is what John's getting at in this next category. So he moves from the desires of the flesh to the desires of the eyes. And again, he's just taking us back to the garden to one of our biggest temptations. And what he's getting at with the desires of the eyes is greed and covetousness and selfish ambition. Um, Eve was tempted, we're told, when she saw that the tree was delightful to her eyes. And so the way this works is the eyes are like the window into the body's cravings. And so here's how it works. You see it, then you want it. My kids can go 12 months without playing for a toy, without like playing with a toy. Like they don't even care about it, not even thinking about it. But then they see one of their siblings with it and they want it. Like it is insane. So the eyes are like the window into the body's cravings. I see it and I want it. Uh, you see your coworker's new truck. Now you want a new truck, right? You see beautiful, attractive people on TV, and you want a body like that, and you want to look beautiful. You see that cheeseburger, and something in your body says, I want that, right? You see it on Amazon, and something in you says, I have to have this. You see people on Instagram who look happy, and their life seems great, and your heart screams, ah, oh, I want to be happy. I want a life like that. You see it, and then you want it. These are the desires of the eyes. And I'm telling you, the way this is showing up, so I'm trying to, trying to make this applicable to how, how we're experiencing this stuff now. The way this is showing up in our culture right now in a massive way is through the idol and the stronghold of consumerism. I see and I want and so whereas hedonism is the worship of pleasure, consumerism is simply the worship of more. More, 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 more. And those who study our culture love to point out that we are flat out addicted to buying and acquiring more stuff. Uh, Christmas is around the corner, right? So it means that we're all about to be doing some shopping. And um, the crazy thing is that shopping has never been easier ever before than it is now. Like, it's just the click of a button, right? You don't even have to leave your house. You don't even have to get dressed, right? Like, you can buy something for somebody when you're using the bathroom if you want to. Like, I mean, whatever you want to do. Like, you don't have to get dressed. You don't have to put on clothes. You don't have to get in your car. You don't have to deal with traffic. You don't have to go to a store during limited hours. Um, you don't have to walk down the aisles and try to find what it is you want and then wait in a checkout line. It's just, and it's here in two days, right? Like, you just, it's just a click. It's crazy. And, and we know that every time you buy something, you get this dopamine hit or you get sick, which is your body also trying to tell you that you don't need to be buying stuff, right? But typically what happens is we get this dopamine hit. It sends this shot of pleasure into the body and it feels good. And then when the package arrives, it feels even better. I love the little Amazon packages that show up three or four times a week at my house. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Only problem is it doesn't last long. And so we have to go out and we have to buy more stuff. And it's this vicious cycle. And sociologists have a name for it. It's called the prosperity paradox. You should write this down, okay? Here's the prosperity paradox. The more you have, the more you want. Consumerism 101. The more you have, the more you want. 
The more you're gratified, the less you're satisfied. It's this really strange thing that with every consumption, you don't get more full. Your heart wakes up and you get more hungry, more empty. There's a deeper longing. This is the prosperity paradox. Um, recently, I did something. Uh, recently, I, I bought a motorcycle. And I know what you're all thinking. Uh, it, you look at me and you think, well, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> and you look like the kind of guy that would drive a motorcycle. Uh, but it's a 76 Honda CB550. My dad had one like it when I was a kid, and I've been scoping them out for years. And um, our very own Dennis Payne, who's here with us. Raise your hand, Dennis. There he is. Dennis way into bikes, and Dennis helped me, made sure that I wasn't going to get taken advantage of, kind of helped me pick out my bike. And so um, before I pulled the trigger, Dennis pulled me aside, and he said, listen now, like, uh, uh, be careful. And I think he's talking, and I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to be safe on the road. I'm going to watch. I don't know how to drive a bike. You know, I'm going I'm to watch out for other people. He said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Be careful. And he said, you want to know what the rule of thumb is on how many motorcycles you should own? And I said, what's that? And he said, one more than you currently have. <laughs> so, so what he's touching on is like, I'm already experiencing it. Like you buy, you get a motorcycle and you're like, there's a thousand accessories for this thing. And there's like, there's like motorcycle jeans and jackets and gloves. And like, there's just, I mean, and I'm like already like, you know what? Someday I want to get a, a bike like this. It's insane. And so what Dennis, our very own cultural prophet is touching on is this lie that's been institutionalized and normalized that says more stuff equals more satisfaction. But I'm telling you, as delicious as it looks and sounds and feels and all that, it's just not true. And we've quoted this before, but you know, there's that famous line from John D. Rockefeller, most modern, I mean, richest man in American history, worth more than uh, $200 billion estimated today. And when he was asked how much money is enough, you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Yeah, just a little bit more. Consuming more does not satisfy the soul. It starves the soul of what it truly needs, which is Jesus. Now, flaying the plane, let's move to this last category here. Um, John moves from the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes to talking about the pride of life. And again, he's just retelling the garden story, okay? Eve was tempted when she saw that the tree would make her wise enough that she could run her life without God. That's the pride of life. Pride is, I don't need you. I'm, I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient, autonomous. And so this has been normalized. And right now you can really see this showing up in our culture in the form of radical individualism and anti-authoritarianism. I, you, you can't tell me what to do, right? I'm the dadgummit. I'm the boss of my life. I can define my own reality. I'll, it's my truth, right? Like now all of a sudden, like you get to own truth. Like it's my truth. And so individualism is just this, it's boil it all down. It's just this worship of self. I get to be the boss of my life. I get to do whatever I want. And listen, I want to be really, really careful here. My prayer is that what you experience from me is grace and love from me and from your pastors in this moment because this can get emotionally charged really fast. But you really see this law of individualism playing itself in our culture in this idea that I can be whoever or whatever I want to be. And it's not just Christians, but secular ethicists are talking about this. And they're talking about how Right now, we, we, are, we are reducing biological categories into personal feelings or preferences, and you can be whatever you feel like. This is radical individualism. And I read an article this week from The Atlantic, far from a conservative religion, like Christian source, but The Atlantic's even talking about this. The Atlantic was talking about how there's enormous pressure put on parents right now by the world to let your kids be the authority. So if your kids, because this is the worship of self. So if, if a kid says, I want to play a thousand sports, you got to pay You got to play a thousand sports. If your kid wants all these things, you got to go into credit card debt and you got to buy them all these things. Um, 
when your child, like all children, go through the phase of life where they're exploring their identity and their sexuality and they're trying to figure out who in the world they are, whatever they decide, you have to go with it. It's the pressure that's being put on us by this law of radical individualism. And John calls it the pride of life. I don't need you, God. I don't need your word. I don't need the created order. I don't need to go by your design. I can just simply do whatever I feel like doing. Listen, that lives in me. That is loud in me. And I want to say this. I'm not denying that those feelings aren't real either. Uh, but our feelings and our desires are not always in line with like biology or the created order or the truth about what God says is best for us. And so listen, let me say this. This is coming from all your pastors. Um, here's a good rule. Like when you bump up against a boundary that God has drawn for you and you taste an ingredient that all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I'm not, not sure that one belongs in the, in the pot. Like when you bump up against a boundary where it's like, don't eat from this tree or don't give in to this desire or that, it's not because God is holding out on you and he doesn't love you and he doesn't want you to be happy. It's precisely because he does love you and want you to be happy. And he's wise and he designed you and he designed life and the created order and he knows what's best for you. And so every time you bump up against the boundary, it's an invitation for you to trust God. It's like my kids when I say, don't play in the street. If you heed my words, then my commands will be life-giving to you. They'll actually preserve and save your life. Like, every time you bump up against one of these lines, he's not trying to hold out on you. He's saying, trust me. Trust me. Abide in my love and trust me. I see you. I understand your temptations. Jesus put on flesh. He walked in your shoes. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it's like to be tempted and have all these competing, warring desires. He knows what that's like. And yet he still holds the boundaries and the moral lines and says, trust me. And like we, we man, we have to learn uh, to not trust our desires or trust what's normal or what everybody's doing. Everybody is often quite wrong. Like that's, that's the great danger for democracy. Like the majority is not always right. They're just not. Like, I don't care if everybody's doing it. It's wrong. I'm totally preaching this to myself. So we've got to trust Jesus. Amen? We have to trust His mental maps, His Scripture, what He says is right, wrong, good, beautiful, true, what He says is out of bounds or inbounds, even when it doesn't fit with necessarily with my desires, which happens to me on a daily basis. Okay? To close, here's how, a question I want to ask. All right, How do we fight against the pull of the world? It's obviously pulling us and trying to conform us. How do we fight against it? Well, we're, we continue to work under the assumption that uh, the belief that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare and that the practices of Jesus are how we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so our practice for this week is a review of silence and solitude. We taught on this back in May of 2017. We taught on this last December. Both of those uh, sermons are available on our podcast if you want to listen to those. If you're in a missional community, you should be discussing this practice uh, today at your family meal and throughout the week in your DNAs. If you're not in a missional community, you can download this practice there on our website right there on the screen for you. And listen, the whole point of, of silence and solitude is that we want to follow the model of Jesus. We see Jesus slipping out and stepping away from the world and all the chaos and the pull of the world to get alone with God and simply to enjoy the, the pleasure of his presence, just to take delight in the Father, and if you're consuming anything, to just let yourself be consumed with Him and to learn to abide in His love so that then you can go back into the world with a mission to show and tell others that you found what they're looking for. Right? We have a mission to be in the world and not of the world. And so we back out, we gather our wits about ourselves, we spend alone time with God, we, we consume and we receive from Him, we go back out into the world and tell people that like true salvation and satisfaction is found in feasting on Jesus and consuming Him and surrendering your desires and your will to Him, not these other things, not these other places. And listen, I'll close, Look, we, we've, 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 we've all been in front of that tree in Genesis 3 a thousand times. Like you stand in front of that tree right now with a decision to make. 
We stand in front of that tree every day, and the decision is, am I going to love the world and the things in the world, or am I going to love Jesus and embrace his love for me as my identity? We just want you to say, like, man, as pastors, with all the love in our heart, don't be deceived. Uh, There's a line in Proverbs 14, 12, you see it again in 16, 25, that says, there is a way that appears to be right. This feels right. I'm going to do this. Like, this just... This has to be who I am because it feels like who I am. There there is a way that appears to be right and lead to life, but Proverbs says it's a way that ends in death. That's what John's talking about in verse 17. He says, look, this world and all the things in it are passing away. It's dying. Everything you're building your life on that's not Jesus will die and decay in this life. And John says, true life is found in in." in abiding by the Father's will. Which you look at all of John's theology, doing the will of the Father is always simply to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus and you'll find life. Um, Turn away from the sin, all the stuff that you build your life on, and embrace Jesus as your only hope. The good news that you're truly longing for and searching for. Here's the good news. We celebrate it every week when we come to this table. Jesus' body was broken And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins to reconcile us to God and to overcome the world. And so the way we take communion here is you simply tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup. We have stations on each side of me and in the back here we have a gluten-free option back here to my left and your right. And if you're in this room and you'd say that you've embraced Jesus as your hope, then I just want to invite you to, uh, man, come and celebrate this meal. If you're in this room and you would say that's not where you're at this morning, I'm so glad you're here. We love you. Um, We want to journey with you. And our invitation would be not to take this meal, but just to take Jesus and to receive him this morning. And if you make that decision or you want to process that, pray through that, dialogue about that, I would love to meet with you after the service. Um, Or Jared or uh, Luke or Robert, one of our pastor's staff, like we would love to talk with you. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. I'm going to ask that you would go ahead and stand. And uh, let's just go before the Father in prayer. So, Father, we do pray that right now you would um, protect us from the evil one and from the pull to tune out and be distracted and to not listen to what it is that you're calling us to do in this moment. I pray, God, that you would awaken repentance and faith, especially in those here this morning who, who are not trusting in you. For those who are running from you, I just pray, God, that you would stop them turn them around and transform them, melt them with your love and your grace. And I do pray, God, that um, the crossing church would be known and we would have a reputation of being a people who are in the world and not of the world. And that whenever people, our neighbors, friends, family members, co-workers, when they bump up against us, they would taste an ingredient that is different. They would taste the gospel. They would taste and see that you're good. It would create more and more gospel conversations. Help us to live that way. We pray in Jesus' name.